Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. to bite into it. It's just after seven on a Wednesday evening and we've got Lily Ryan. Hello. I'm Vanessa Taholka. And tonight we're joined by special panel op David Nichols. Uh, He is currently micless in purgatory behind the desk holding out on us. We'll see if we can't convince him to get on mic a bit later in the evening. (laughs) On the show this evening, we have a couple of spectacular guests for you. First of all, we'll be unpacking a bit about misinformation. I think you all know what it is, but what are some of the what are some of the you know warning signs that you might be vulnerable to it, and what can we do about it? We'll speak to Andy Perfor, as an academic, all about that a bit later in the show. We're also going to speak to the uh, to James from Digital Rights Watch. Uh, James has been, I think, watching the federal election with an even more. Uh, you know, concentrated focus than the rest of us, thinking, what will this mean for digital rights in Australia? What is tech policy going to look like? What's the potential? What are the dreams? What's the blue sky thinking? That's what we'll get to later in the show. Before we get there, Lily, what's happening in news? Yeah, I got a few news items this week. Uh, One that was particularly exciting to me was uh, something that came out earlier today, ICO. Um, The information commissioner in the UK has fined Clearview AI, who are the facial recognition company, has fined them um, seven and a half million pounds, million with an M, um, and ordered all of the UK data that they hold to be deleted. So for people who haven't heard of Clearview AI or want a refresher, they are a company that has been uh, selling their scarily accurate AI, um, AI-based facial recognition software to law enforcement and private companies around the world. And they have also offered it to be sold to the Australian police, uh, the mm. federal police, and lots of state police as well. And one of the co-founders is an Aussie. 
Yeah, yeah, mm. that's right. And so um, they've been in the news for a couple of years, uh, mostly because the way that they gather the data and the, what, the reason it's so accurate is because they have been scraping all of that information off of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the publicly available pictures that people put up for very different purposes. So they've been scraping that, importing it into their database, and then allowing people to connect images and find those people as sort of a like a, a reverse image search, like powered up, mm. you know? And so that has been under scrutiny for a long time. And ICO in the UK and the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner came together last year and did a study on it. And um, as a result of that, the Australian Information Commissioner wrote them a very stern letter and said, don't do it again. And uh, <laughs> the uh, UK government has fined them 7.5 million pounds. It really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? You know, whether yeah. your regulatory um, follow through has been a bit toothless. <laughs> I mean, uh, you could talk similarly about privacy law in Australia, really, I think. And we will later in the show. We sure will. Absolutely. All right. That's great. Um, there was a little piece that caught my eye this week in the news. Um, it's not related to Australia, but the Spanish government on Tuesday um, announced plans to invest $13.2 billion to build microchips in the country. And I thought this was interesting in the context of real supply chain issues mm. in getting microchips around the world and that causing delays and people getting all sorts of computer upgrades, phone upgrades, what have you, that they wanted to have. Um, they've said that this investment is to help reduce the dependence of Spain and the European Union on other suppliers. And, you know, particularly, they're just like, look, how can we, how can we directly boost our uh, currently weak position in microchip production? Um, at the moment, they represent 10% of the world total production of microchips. I'm surprised they represent any, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, but they said that they're really highly dependent on a small number of major producers, such as those in Taiwan, the US, South Korea, Japan and China. And uh, they just want some independence there, some options. And I think they think there's a lot of potential to expand across the EU market. And surely there must be. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say so. And I, I guess um, supply chain logistics have been on everyone's mind the last couple of years, if not for the pandemic, because also that time that big ship got real stuck in the canal. Um, yeah, and so I can see why they would want they would want a bit of that over there. But I thought some of the uh, the interesting stuff about the microchip shortage wasn't just about supply chain in terms of manufacturing, mm. but it was about the components that went into making them up. So I wonder yeah. how this addresses that. Yeah. And also a bunch of IP, you know, are you yeah. getting tremendously behind? Can you even compete anymore? You know, how do you invest in the IP of it all, not just the manufacturing? So do, you know, who do you partner with? What will that look like? It's, it's going to be really interesting because this investment's only just been announced. So presumably we'll hear announcements about those sort of relationships a little further down the track. Yeah, well, super interesting. And hey, anything that reduces the air miles on, you know, key components of our infrastructure, sure. Yeah, great. Um, talking air miles, uh, I've been having a bit of a look into drone delivery because there have been a few articles in the States lately and I wanted to understand how's Australia's market looking right now. And uh, it turns out that Alphabet are one of the biggest investors in drone delivery in Australia at the moment. Alphabet, a.k.a. Google. That's right, right. that Alphabet. So they've got a little sub-company called Wing and Cute. they've completed more than 100,000 drone deliveries in Australia last year. Did you know that? I did not know that. I had no, no idea. And that's because they're not going past my window or your window, presumably. Um, but a lot of these trials have been going on in Tasmania. 
in Tasmania. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So huh. um, in the first two months of this year, they've already surpassed 30,000 deliveries. And Momentum has been delivered by a strong list of partners with Wing. And those include a major supermarket chain. And they're starting to include smaller um, fast food delivery services. Oh, really? So you yep. can just – there's no more sort of like late night Macca's drive through the Macca – Macca's drive I haven't seen you. Macca's on the list, but I've seen, you know, various burrito type making companies okay, on the yeah, list. Okay, I think burrito, I mean, burritos would travel well, yeah, right? Yeah, presumably. And uh, I mean, you could maybe put them in a rocket rather than a drone. They're, they're rocket shaped. But uh, it's been in Canberra and, um, oh, sorry, and Logan. Sorry, is Logan in the ACT? I think it is. I think I said Tas. No, where's Logan? Queensland. Geography. This is terrible. I feel like <laughs> I feel like Anthony Jones, and I'm frantically clicking the buttons trying to find the electorate. Did I say Tasmania? I you meant did. ACT oh, and the Queensland. ACT. All right, the there ACT you go. And corrections, corrections. Okay. We too can be guilty of misinformation here on Bite, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to get Andy to help us unpack that a little bit later. Um, so, where does this leave us in comparison to the US at the moment? Well. Walmart launched a human-piloted drone delivery program in November last year, and we know that Walmart's a huge, you know, uh, bigger than supermarkets, like supermarket plus department store sort of shop mm. in the States. Um, currently, they have to have that line of sight to the drone, so between the, the, the drone pilot and where the drone's going, so you can imagine how limiting that is. And yeah. uh, it also means that to scale up, they have to scale up the number of pilots that they're using. So it's, you know, there's a natural kind of constraint on that growth, both in the skills, how many people want it, you know, um, the ability to have line of sight delivery in various places. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so that's meant that they've constrained their deliveries to happen between, you know, within a 1.5 mile radius of the store. I'm sorry, that's in US measurements. I didn't have time to change them into kilometers. Are they are they like building towers? That that's right. Like, okay, so yeah. like towers that people and can... a radius and going right. Here's the drone delivery zone, and you can okay. see them going out from there. Presumably, I'm going to have to try and find videos. Yeah, so look out for that on our Twitter account if I can find it. But by the end of this year, they hope to expand the number of stores offering drone delivery to 34 sites. Now, their main potential competitor down the track looks to be Amazon. Amazon have been talking about drone delivery and indeed piloting it um, since 2016. So there was a famous pilot they did in the UK, a pilot of piloting drones, I guess. Yeah. But they're interested in the autonomous drone game. Mm. So that's why they're taking longer, presumably, to get to market but um, that's what they want to try and do. And there's all sorts of regulatory barriers there. I wonder why why Alphabet and Google are doing this in Australia. I mean, and they're not doing it in the US. And conversely, why, why Amazon's not doing it here. Um, I haven't actually looked into that. I would, I doubt that's true. Yeah. I, I would expect that Alphabet are probably testing in lots of locations around <laughs> yes, the world. Probably. I, I if only we had someone who knew a bit about urban planning who might like. You know, to, <laughs> but you know, maybe in the future we'll be able to to get someone in who could speak about that. Um, something to look forward to. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. You're with Bite Into It with Lily, Vanessa and David. Thanks for being with us this evening. Identifying misinformation is difficult for all of us, but we can make it easier by being aware of our biases, perhaps. 
In the wake of the federal election, it seems like a really good time to reflect on why we're vulnerable to bad information. So we thought we'd chat to Associate Professor Andrew Perfors, who's joining us tonight with some insights. Welcome. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's great to have you. (laughs) So when we talk about misinformation, do you want to give our audience maybe a quick definition, just a reminder? No, it's actually a good question. Um, And we kind of make the distinction when we're studying it between misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. And so disinformation is basically all of them are incorrect things. Disinformation is if someone is actually actively, they know it's incorrect, they're trying to spread it around like trolls or, you know, Russian whatever, um, (laughs) bots and things like that. Misinformation is stuff that people spread, they think it's correct, but they're spreading it and it's inaccurate. And then malinformation is more about, it's information that... um, basically can have really bad effects. So it, it, it might even be like technically true, but sort of with the wrong slant or emphasizing the wrong thing. And, um, and you know, so an example of that might be, remember like a year ago, everyone was talking about the, the AstraZeneca virus and the, the problems with it, or the AstraZeneca um, vaccine, vaccine, not a virus. Yeah, um, that would be <laughs> misinformation. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, these, the things they were pointing out with this sort of this tiny, um, you know, tiny probability of having a bad effect is that was true, but it was, it, it ended up being malinformation basically because compared to the actual, you know, uh, problems, if you got COVID, it was it's much worse. And so what tended to be spread around was, you know, not accurate because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So why why do people share this stuff if it's fake? So this is the thing. And the more I study this, uh, the more I have a lot of sympathy for us because it's a really hard problem is figuring out what's true or not. The reason I got into studying is I study cognitive science and I was interested in how we learn from each other. And most of the time, it's actually really good to learn from other people. So, I'm, you know, in learning language, like almost everything, we learn from other people. Um. Uh, and the reason is because we actually don't have access to a lot of the truth ourselves directly, right? I mean, you're studying calculus, like, you know, unless you're inventing calculus, you have to learn that from other people. Sure. Same thing with gossip, you know, like, um, but almost everything is given to us by other people. And so figuring out, though, what's true or not, so how do you do that, right? And you think, well, um, I can compare it to what I know. And that works for some things. Like if someone tells me the sky is red, I'm going to be like, that person's a liar. But a lot of things we don't actually know, right? If someone's telling me this vaccine works because of blah, 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 well, I'm not a medical scientist. I don't know, right? Yeah, sure. And so we have to use heuristics to sort of judge it. And one of the heuristics is, is this person trustworthy? And other ones are like, does this make sense? And the problem is these heuristics fail a lot. So how do you judge if someone's trustworthy? If you know them well, that works, but you're hearing this from a random person on the radio. Why are you hearing – why are you trusting me? Maybe you shouldn't be, right? You know, <laughs> But um, you have a trustworthy yeah. voice. Well, that's the thing. And so those are some of our heuristics is do they sound like they know what they're talking about? Do they seem appealing? And these are actually not very good heuristics at all, right? Um, but so you think, okay, what else could we use? Well, does it make sense? And you think, what does it mean to make sense? Well – one thing is to say, does it make sense with respect to all the stuff I already know? And that often works. 
Except then you find these people who like believe conspiracy thing, theories, and they're now in this. They, th- what they know is false, and then they interpret everything else with respect to that. And you know they're in this. You know, so so basically, <laughs> you know, even that is a kind of not great thing. But a lot of us don't even do that. We just say, "Does it sound sensible?" Which usually comes out to you know, how easily can I process it? And that comes down to, is it simple? So we have all these biases that favor simple things, that sort of make a superficial sense, and we also have a bunch of biases that make um, essentially short-circuit our reasoning. <laughs> um, and so we don't even do that, and they just make us feel strong emotion. Basically. Are there hard. any people who are less vulnerable to bad information? For example, I've heard that potentially disagreeableness, mm. you know, might be a quality <laughs> associated with people who are a little have a stronger skepticism muscle. Yeah, so this is a good question. I mean, the sad news is we're all vulnerable to it. Like probably all of us believe some misinformation. I think that the the research suggests that the people who are least susceptible First of all, if you're very well educated, which means and, – and it doesn't have to be mean formally. You can be just widely read. But you can actually look up sort of original sources and see do they make sense. But the other thing is it's not quite disagreeable, but are you prone to reflection? Because this is a thing that a lot of people – it's not like a, you know, you're prone to misinformation or not. It's most of us are a spectrum. And we can make anyone less prone by just making them stop and think, Right. So something comes across you, you think, instead of, oh, that makes me so mad, I'm going to press, you know, <laughs> like, you know, um, you say, wait, does this make sense? And just stopping and thinking as a sort of reflex and Google reverse image search and stuff, those people, yeah. So is this something where the internet has really lent into that then? How does the internet amplify these tendencies? That's a great question because, I mean, misinformation has always been with us. We've always had these heuristics. And I think it's made it worse, though, for a couple reasons. One is, well, okay, like even 300 years ago, we didn't have as much problem because all the people we learned from were the people we knew. So we could do a lot better, you know. But then you say, okay, media in general should make that harder. But the internet makes it worse because – First of all, it rewards fast action, right? So, um, you know, the people who respond quickly, their tweets go around, everyone jumps on them. There's a very, very strong – so the algorithms reward fast action, so the people want to, you know, respond quickly. But also, you know, advertisers, everyone wants to be fast. And, of course, it's reflection and stopping and thinking and deliberation that makes people less prone to it. Yeah, but then your hot take is a cold take. Yeah, and and – but and, and that's exactly the problem because there's a saying, you know, um, whatever, falsehood can get around the world well, by the time the truth is still putting its boots on, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's really the problem, right? So falsehood happens, acts faster, and also our memories really work against us because once we've learned a falsehood, we can't unlearn it. The most you can do is slightly unlearn it, but it, basically whatever comes in first has an advantage, in our heads. <laughs> so you're saying that if we're trying to, yeah. you know, prove somebody wrong mm-hmm. on the internet and they're like, show us your sources, mm-hmm. that's not going to be effective because they already have a belief? Yeah. So, I mean, it, I'm, I don't want to say it's never going to be effective. Um, uh, and it's often effective for people who aren't that person who already has the belief, who might be watching and trying to figure out what to form. Right. Right. Um, but what's most effective, especially if someone is really, really, you know, devoutly believes something, is figure out their emotional reasons for believing it 
and figure out what web of beliefs it's part of, right? If they're really very far gone, I mean, there's almost nothing you can do unless you're close to them. And even then, you know, they have to kind of want to sort of disentangle it. Mm. But a lot of times people believe something because on some level they want to believe it. And so they're not doing that deliberate reflection because they don't want to unbelieve it, you know. And so if you can speak to that, and very often it's sort of, you know, they get their social connection from other people who believe the same thing. Or, you know, a lot of people believe in conspiracy theories. You'd think, why would you want to believe? They're so horrible. But it's kind of nice in some sense to feel like someone's in charge, even if they're, <laughs> you know, even if they're a jerk, rather than all this is random, right? Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So figure out what the emotional need is and see if you can address the emotion. Um, and then people will be willing to hear the facts. Yeah. I wonder when you were observing the federal election going mm. on and, you know, seeing both poll results come out, but also then people try and analyze those results and, and reflect on what did they, you know, how did you react to that with, with your expertise? Well, I actually very deliberately try to not overreact <laughs> to it. I mean, like, so basically, I mean, I'm American, if you can't tell by my accent. And I've been traumatized by watching some of the American elections and the sort of poll re results and so forth. And, and I know that a lot of poll results are whatever, they're, they're trivial minutiae for the day, you know, and, and there is definitely always a problem of overreacting. What you want to look at is the larger patterns. And that was just terribly depressing because you could see in the election how, you know, they would try to drum up this controversy or this sort of thing to distract people. I would call that malinformation, you know, because the purpose is to stop people from talking about something more important. Right. Yeah. And it was just so frustrating. I mean, it's just so frustrating. And, you know, on some level the way to fight it is by start talking about the important things. Because if you talk about the thing they don't want to talk about, well, now you're talking about it. Even if you're saying, don't talk about this, right? Yeah. And, yeah. So once you start to understand the sorts of biases, I mean, I didn't even know mm. that there was a, like a first mover, you know. Mm. I know. I knew about first mover advantage in a market, but the idea that there's a, a bias for that as an idea being planted yeah. blows my mind a little. It's and I'm always learning about more biases. Yes. You know, does that, also end up colouring your entire look at, you know, the day's news and just thinking, oh, yes, but what questions did we pose to get us here? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to say that studying this has made me very depressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in the sense of, like I said, you know, I, I actually, before I started really getting into this issue, you know, I thought uh, – People just believed wrong things because they were lazy. And in a sense, I feel better about people now because I think most of us are trying. It's just very hard. What depresses me is how many biases we have and how easy it is to take advantage of that. So how do you, how do you um, I guess, sort of with, with your background in cognitive mm -hmm. science, square away something like QAnon? So I think that is um, pretty much a combination of the emotion driving, you know, these are people who very often you look, you know, they are scared and people, when they're scared, that short circuits reason. Um, they want simple solutions, clear answers. And then again, once you're far enough down into the rabbit hole, everything only makes sense with respect to the things you already know. And yeah, so right. they don't, you know, 
what we say when we say the truth, it sounds like lies to them. Yeah. So even if they're doing that reflecting and thinking and you know consulting, they're only reflecting within that pool of influence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And once someone's down there, I mean, again, the, my goal is to basically stop people from going there, down there. So basically, if you find that you are seeking out, and, and it often starts with someone's in a bad place in their life, they're seeking out this thing because it makes them feel better. Yeah. If you find that sort of, then is the time to stop and reflect and say, you know, how can I change my information diet, try to change what's going on in my life rather than sort of, you know, do this to myself. Because a lot of these people lose their families, lose, you know, yeah, it's not good. Have you done any looking into different segments of the population? Because I'm particularly concerned with, you know, maybe how young people start to navigate online, get all this information and, you know, I don't know about you, but as a teenager, I was ripe for radicalization, mm. but it was by punk music, you know, yeah. which is a relatively benign little path to go by, although my parents might disagree slightly. <laughs> uh, but but I do wonder about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I myself haven't, but a lot of the people who study this have. Um, my understanding is actually that it's the older folks, the older generation that is the most vulnerable because, well, first of all, they're very lonely very many of them. And secondly, they actually don't have as much sort of savvy for the online environment. Right. Young people, um, I mean, a lot of the young people, like the, the most radicalized often tend to be young. Um, and it's, again, because of being in a bad place in their life and stuff. Um, but they at least, they're a lot more savvy to just asking, why am I being shown this? Right? I mean, that's the question you always ask. Why am I being shown this? Who gets what out of it? Right? And they're, yeah, if anything, they're almost reflexively too cynical. Um, I mean, I, it I just is say, great it's, to it's, see them yeah, reflect on a TikTok, yeah, you know, stream yeah. and, and go, oh, yeah. that person, oh, they're always, they're so out there, they're so shallow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I am pretty impressed with the critical analysis of what's yeah. going on there. It's, I, I, you know, I teach at university and I'm, I'm very impressed by my students in general. Um, but, uh, but yeah, everyone, you know, everyone is prone to it a bit. Do you think that the steps that social media platforms have taken to improve things like information literacy, like putting the sources underneath names, say, you know, like this person is a, an Australian government official or whatever. Mm. Do you think that's helpful? I think it helps a bit. So the thing is, there's no magic solution, right? Um, and the problem is looking for a magic solution is, is a great way to sort of, you know, lead you down a rabbit hole of wanting a simple <laughs> sort of thing, right? Um, I think that those things help a bit. The problem is, again, once you're really far down, they, you know, they think, the fact that a media company or Google or someone says this is an untrusted source, that means it's a trusted source, right? Right. Um, you know, uh, once you're far. But I think it helps for many people. But, you know, I think we need to do a lot more. Um, one of the things that there's no appetite for talking about, and honestly, I understand why. I don't know the solution is, you know, there's a lot of major sources of misinformation and we just that, that have huge platforms. And Again, because of that first mover advantage, once they're out there, you know, it's really yeah. hard. To, and somehow we have to figure out while, you know, while also respecting free speech or autonomy or something to we have to figure out how to limit the ability of big platforms to, yeah, send out misinformation. I don't know how. 
<laughs> it's incredibly complex. It is. Um, yeah. I do like that you gave us the stop, think, reflect tip. Mm. If there's if there's one other tip you have for people as they're as they're navigating things, or perhaps you know navigating a relationship with someone who they think is going down a rabbit hole a bit, you know, do you have any any pithy non silver bullet type advice? Yeah, I guess I would say think about your emotions, right? We, you know, um, usually if someone, if, if something is causing you to feel strong emotion, it is a sign you may be being manipulated. Of course, the real world sucks. So there's a lot of things that cause strong emotion (laughs) anyways, right? Yeah. You know, but, but look at how they're talking about and ask again, what, why do they want me to make me feel this? And if you feel strong emotion, you know, interrogate that emotion. Oh, yeah. Love that. Interrogate that emotion, the name of our next studio album, but also (laughs) a fantastic piece of advice from Associate Professor Andrew Perfors. Um, Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. This was super interesting. Excellent. It's been great. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. So now we are how many days out from the election? It's it's been it's Wednesday. Three days. Three days. It Four feels days. I mean, it feels simultaneously not enough time and forever. <laughs> so <laughs> Anyway, the election happened last weekend, in case you weren't aware. Uh, We have a new government. That's super interesting. We're still working through all of the implications of those results and the change in government. And, you know, we still haven't entirely, I think, got as as far as knowing who exactly is going to be in what seats and what the balance of power will be like. But we do at least know that it will be a very big change from what has come before. So here to talk to us about what the new government might mean for the future of tech policy is James Clark, who is the executive director of Digital Rights Watch. And I should also disclose that I am on the board of Digital Rights Watch. But um, I really want to hear from James because James has been marinating in all of the policy <laughs> shenanigans that have gone down in the last the, the, while. It's been wafting over here. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the sweet, sweet marinade of policy. Yeah. And so um, we would really like to uh, chat to you a bit, James, about your take on what you think the new government is going to be like for tech policy and the tech world in Australia. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's great to be here to talk about this uh, this wonderful liminal space between the government being elected and the government doing things. Um, <laughs> we can bask in hope a little. We can bask in a little bit of hope. We get to enjoy that little that, that, that emotion for a little while. We also get to wildly speculate about what might happen in the next uh, three years of government. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity here. Obviously, tech policy and, and digital rights was not uh, high on the agenda during the election campaign. Um, so there is a lot that we, we don't know. Um, but there are some things that we've seen Labor uh, talk about, certainly in their, uh, in their platform, that um, gives us some reason to be a little bit optimistic about what, what this term of government could look like. Yeah, that's great. So there are a lot of policies that have been in the works for a while, some of which are still sort of now hanging in that, as you say, weird limbo space. Um, What's next cab off the rank? What are you most interested to sort of see the government dig into? Yeah, well, definitely top of the list for for us is privacy reform. So the the Privacy Act has been in review now for a very long time. Uh, It was part of the ACCC's review into digital platforms 
two years ago, three years ago, a, a long time ago, <laughs> they recommended updating the the Privacy Act to to account for the fact that digital platforms were constantly spying on us. Um, Instead of ex- adopting those reviews, the government, uh, the the, la- the previous government, the Scott Morrison government, um, initiated a, a review of the Privacy Act um, to look into those changes. Um, there were there there was recommendations made from that review, um, and in the first round, and then they 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 just kept kicking the can down the road. I guess is the short version of this story. It was it was due to report. Then an election got called, so we're expecting. Um, so it's unclear exactly what will happen with this new government picking this up. So some people have speculated about to what extent they'll start to um, reflect on the progress made in the EU with the GDPR mm. and you know, and align in some ways to some of the initiatives there. What do you think mm. the likelihood of, of us seeing an Australian version of a GDPR is? I think that we have reason to be optimistic. Labor did um, call privacy reform out in their election platform. Um, it, they, they mentioned that they, you know, were proud of their history of making changes to the Privacy Act in, I believe, 1988. So they, <laughs> they, they do have a long memory, the Labor Party. <laughs> they do like to talk about their achievements many, many years ago. Um, but they, they did mention that and they did talk about wanting to, to have appropriate changes. That was in their election platform. Um, they have been good on the the Senate um, committee. They've they've made good noises here. But I also think the likelihood here of getting good outcomes really depends on civil society and the campaigns that we can we can run and the pressure that we can apply on them. Um, you know, we can only really speculate. But I I would speculate that the reason that the can kept getting kicked down the road on privacy reforms was that the government was not really keen to pick a fight with Meta um, and Google just before an election. Um, and I, you know, they will absolutely resist these reforms, and so we are going to have to, as a as civil society and as as digital rights advocates, we are going to have to think about how we're going to, you know, hold labour to account on this. So I think the likelihood really is up to us in many ways of how likely and how strong these reforms go. You mentioned Meta and Google. I know that, um, you know, we spent a lot of time in the last year talking about the, you know, news media bargaining code and all of the stuff where the government really got into it with a lot of the platforms. What do you think it's going to look like, this government's relationship with private industry and tech regulation in the coming years? I mean, that's a really, it's a really hard one to speculate on. I think it's, it's I Labor have certainly said, and they have been open to uh, the tech industry locally in ways that I think that the Liberal government wasn't. Um, I also think, like, I, I often look at the the news media bargaining code in particular, like, that was very much a, a, a fight. Like, it was an in, a fight between capital, I guess. Like, you had <laughs> old media capital in Australia, who does hold a lot of power. Obviously, Murdoch um, is an enormously powerful and such a concentrated media market. They are enormously powerful in this country. Um, and, you know, and they were losing money to these big tech companies from Silicon Valley. And so the Australian government kind of, you know, took the fight to Silicon Valley on behalf of these local, these local industries. Um, I, I, w- I don't know if Labor would do the same because Labor might look more favorably to, towards Meta than M- Murdoch. <laughs> like, it's really hard to say what their relationship to, to these companies are going to be. I don't think they're going to be particularly friendly to uh, global big tech, but we don't know. Well, similarly, we saw a change of the e-safety commissioner um, during Mm. the last government's, uh, yeah, being in. And 
there was a real focus since the change on children's safety you know it's like they shied away from Mm. any of the adult issues we had about these these massive companies using our information and invading our privacy and just went you know what's a nice safe contained area for us to look after that's uncontroversial relatively uh it's like children and protecting them and making sure that they're Mm. safe and i and i feel like that was you know that was a hugely political decision that appointment Mm. um do we think that Labor will be more ambitious there or indeed, you know, the the various people on the bench, you know, the various teal and green candidates have also gotten seats. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question and, and certainly the e-safety commissioner has um, uh, been under scrutiny from us a little bit in, in her role. Um, I do – I actually think that Labor have – and certainly what I've seen um, from statements from – uh, they're relevant, I guess, now. Like they were shadow ministers. I guess we don't know what the portfolios are going to look like in this government. Um, but their platform does also explicitly call out um, protecting children children from... And nobody's arguing with that. Yeah. No, that's no. very uncontroversial. I mean, it it is and it isn't, right? Yeah, like yeah. the methods for keeping um, for this uh, are controversial. I mean, to say that we're going to protect children from from harm is is obviously an uncontroversial statement but the definition the, of harm <laughs> exactly the definition of harm is is obviously a political question the definition of and also then that the methods that you go about and the unintended or i guess like the the, the collateral the collateral damage in those exactly is yeah. is um is real and but you know we haven't seen labor talk much about that but we have seen labor continue along with very similar rhetoric around the online harms for children so um, again, I, I think that we are going to have to really hold them to account on this. I do think that Labor are likely to continue uh, a really similar kind of um, surveillance and censorship model for, for avoiding online harm. But even just today, like there was a human rights um, human rights watch report that just came out today about um, e-tech com- um, companies. So all of the technology that's been deployed in schools for remote learning has a bunch of spyware built into it. It's yes, collecting sure a bunch of data about children. And, uh, and a lot of that is going to like big advertising tech companies and especially obviously the biggest players in that field are Google and Meta. But obviously there are many other companies who we, you know, we don't know the names of, aren't consumer facing. But um, you know, if I, when I think about co- protecting children online, I, I think that that is just as important. Um, you know, the kind of information that is being collected in these spaces. And we see a lot less attention being paid to those kind of harms, which also affect, Older people, like it's not just children who are being spied on and manipulated online. No, it's everybody. It's all of us. As long as you can make money off it, why not? Why not? <laughs> um, in a similar vein, you know, with, with Labor taking on a, a very kind of uh, thematically similar approach, I suppose, and, you know, picking fights that are very hard to argue with, um, the national security legislation that's been passed in the last couple of years when it comes to data retention, we've had the Identify and Disrupt Bill, the um, Assistance and Access Act, um, and all of those kinds of things that have gone past in the last few years. Do you think that any of those powers, you know, those sort of spy powers in terms of being able to coerce developers to add not backdoors but backdoors into software – um, do you think you'll see we'll see any of that wound back or softened or changed? Because I know that we did have quite a lot of that legislation that sort of, you know, I, particularly I think in the lead up to Christmas of 2019, um, the government said, okay, well, we just need to get this done because terrorism will fix it in post. And uh, that hasn't happened. Do you think that it will? 
I'm not optimistic. I have to admit that Labor will will want to to pick these pick up these issues um, in their first term of government. Um, but I do think it is um, there is space here, and I think that we do need to continually bring the rights conversation into this. And I think that you know often we do not talk about just like the human rights and why they are important. And I think that you know we there is a long running campaign in Australia that, that Digital Rights Watch has been a part of, but um, the Human Rights Law Centre I think have been the real driving force behind for bringing in a Charter of Human Rights in Australia, where we do actually explicitly say that these these things are important. That our you know our right to privacy here is as just one of those really important. Yeah, because we don't have one, do we nationally? We, we don't, don't have, have a national bill yeah. of rights or any Charter of Human Rights or any. Uh, any legal framework really that that enshrines that, which means we don't really have much of a culture around talking about rights. Um, and just talking about like, you know, we have a right to a private life. And I think we often find ourselves when we talk about like national security and, you know, in that f- context, when we're talking about pushing back on these legislations, people are like, well, you know, like there are bad actors, we need to catch them, which, and, or like, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear is often a line that gets trotted out. But you know, we have a right to a private life. People have a right to assume that we can do things in private and to take that away just because there might be some bad actors, um, you know, has consequences and, and, you know, erodes our democracy and our civil space. And I think that, um, yeah, I'm excited about the possibility under Labor of maybe trying to to pursue a bit more of a human rights frame Mm. on this. I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about the right to repair movement. Mm. Um, it is something that various, you know, backbenchers have dabbled in over time, but nothing we've seen explicitly. But if you if you had a, a wish list out there, you know, what sort of policy would you like to see coming forward from government in this space? And what do you think, you know, individual governments can do if maybe they're not the seat of the manufacturing of a bunch of this stuff? Mm. Are we so in terms of right to repair? Mm. Because not actually an issue that I've spent much time thinking about, to be honest. Um, but certainly, I think that we would like to see. Um, I guess, like in the other, in my other uh, life before Digital Rights Watch, I was uh, a climate campaigner for the most part, and spent a lot of time thinking about how we can make our our world more sustainable and definitely I think the right to repair um, and you know trying to fight back against disposable technology and disposable consumer culture um, is certainly something that I'm keen to see and I think that um, yeah we would love to see less proprietary knowledge I guess and I guess like it's the right to repair is also related in my mind to this idea of um, the commons and, and openness that that just because this technology exists and is made, you know, it shouldn't it shouldn't be proprietary, I guess. Like it should have some amount of like public utility. Like these these, you know, our phones that we use to access the internet is how we engage with society and democracy, um, and that being locked down by specific companies and really like let's be honest it's like it's a handful of companies yeah and at the point that these things become extensions of our brains and Mm. become so you know uh indelibly you know tied to our ability to uh act you know professionally and achieve in our lives you know I, i do think there's an interesting tension there between now who owns everything here Mm. This thing that I've paid for, that I've then invested all my time in and put all this energy into, and then you know the the ability for things to just become obsolete and not supported and what have you, can, 
really challenges me as a concept. It has been really interesting to see Apple step into this space super recently mm. and get into that whole, yes, all right, we will sell you the tools and the parts that you need to repair and actually try and give people the instructions that they need to do it. Of course, you know, you have to buy it from them. So that is that is very Apple Three times the them. cost that maybe yes. off the shelf mm. no branded might be. Yes, but, but in any sense, uh, getting them, you know, famously soldering their entire motherboards together um, with with everything else um, so that you couldn't replace individual parts. Seeing them make that shift has been super interesting and hopeful, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, more changes is to come. So mm. if there's a... Yeah. Oh, sorry. If, uh, if anyone's just tuned in, I just want to call out that we are in conversation with James Clark, the Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch at the moment, just having a little bit of a post-election breakdown. Yeah, um, so I was uh, just curious, you know, if there is one thing that you're really hoping for from this new government in terms of digital rights, uh, what would it be? Yeah, I think we, we mentioned it kind of earlier. I really do think that privacy reform is, is, a, is a really big fight in, in this one, and I, mm. in, in this term of government. And I think, you know, obviously before I, I heard the conversation about misinformation and, and, you know, we've spoken a lot about this at Digital Rights Watch as well, that... Um, the right to miss or the, the ability to misinform begins with an invasion of privacy that like these like targeted um, bits of uh, disinformation that can be weaponized um, that are targeted at individuals to manipulate their emotions and those algorithms that are able to like identify your emotions, identify what emotions a post is eliciting from a person um, and then you know putting that in front of people who are susceptible to that. To, to feel that same emotion like and that allows that amplification that begins from an invasion of privacy and this is also true of like the economic power of these these companies um and i think and obviously like aside from just reigning in the power of these companies we also have a right to privacy as i mentioned before like <laughs> it's also like we have a right to be able to organize politically we have a right to be able to uh have a private life and all of those things shouldn't be that that privacy shouldn't be invaded by companies but it also shouldn't be invaded by the government i really think that uh that's that's going to be the really big fight during this term of government i think and if we can get really meaningful privacy reforms and i think obviously gdpr is a, a really fantastic starting point but like there's no reason that we can't go further and better and learn from that obviously gdpr led to our, my favorite game on the internet um how do I get rid of cookies because I just want to read this, like, 30-second article? <laughs> Accept then, or reject. Wait, no. Yeah, and that's it. And you spend, like, t you know, two minutes trying to get rid of cookies just to quickly flip through an article that takes you 10 seconds. So, obviously, there are, you know, there is lessons to be learned from where, I guess, GDPR failed. And so I think we should be learning those lessons and fighting really hard for privacy reform in this term of government. Great. Love it. You're about as uncontroversial as our e-safety commissioner, James. <laughs> but uh, I know that there's a lot more fire and ambition there for down the track. So we look forward to hearing what's coming from uh, Digital Rights Watch in the months to come. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Triple R. We've got David, Lily and I in studio. Thanks for being with us. Hey, actor Seth Green is in the tech news today. Why is it so... Oh, wow. Yes. So Seth Green um, has had a bored ape NFT named Fred stolen from his crypto wallet. This is the best news I've had all week. I <laughs> mean, I was, a huge, I was a huge fan of, of him and Buffy, but uh, this is hilarious. Yeah. So he's he's super. He's one of those celebrities who's gotten super on the NFT band, yeah. bandwagon, you know, all the pictures of smoking monkeys and 
other, you know, procedurally generated things. Anyway, apparently he owns a bunch of them, but he now owns fewer than he used to because he had some of them stolen in a phishing attack. So, um, that's not great for him because he had, apart from having this property stolen, he had been um, working on this TV show that starred a bunch of his NFT characters, including Fred, who was going to be a bartender in the show. Uh, you can see the trailer for this show. It's kicking around Twitter. Honestly, uh, it's a bit of like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit style kind of thing where you've got live action mixed in with the animation. The hype will probably only do them good. Yeah. Um, but the question is whether he can actually continue to make the show yeah. because he no longer owns the NFT. Even though it was stolen from him, somebody else bought it and has hold, has held it. And despite how many times he has tweeted at them, they haven't replied. So they still have it. Uh, which means that he may not actually legally have the right to use that character in his show anymore. Amazing. Because Amazing. of how the way the blockchain works. Very nice. Yeah. Worth looking into. It could be some precedent-setting law happening. Um, yeah. So what's happening in events this week, Lily? <laughs> um, well, far from stolen NFTs, um, Digital Rights Watch uh, and Music Victoria have banded together pun intended, to cre uh, to run an event called Create, which will be happening on Thursday next week. That's the 2nd of June. I can't believe it's June already, but 2nd of June at 6.30 p.m. Um, at the Music Market in Collingwood. So this is part of their series on uh, rebuilding rebalancing the internet economy, um, where they're going to get into a whole discussion about how we manage uh, – music and artists online and the way that the internet economy has affected their um, their platforms and their existence and their creativity. So it's uh, partly uh, a musical thing featuring singer-songwriter Ailish Gillian and uh, partly a conversation. Which, Amazing. Yeah, that'll be – tickets are on sale now, 20 bucks at Eventbrite. Uh, if you go to digitalrightswatch.org.au, you can find that. Beautiful. Yeah. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening. We spoke to Associate Professor Andrew Perfors from Uni Melbourne and James Clark from Digital Rights Watch. Thank you to my co-hosts, Lily and David, importantly pressing all the buttons. Uh, thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, and our podcaster, Matt Hall. We've been bite into it and we will be back next Wednesday afternoon. For now, do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew up next. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 